1: This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Baring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Baring, And I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to the Unraveled Podcast. So when we left off last week, we were talking about
0: Denise Haraway, giving a backstory of who she was, what she was up to, and leaving the episode, we left it with her disappearance.
1: And at the end of last week's episode, we had a bit of a cliffhanger there. We realized that the persons who we had introduced in in what was going on were actually probably the last people to see her alive. And so we promised you that this week We would talk about the investigation What happened, what went well And what didn't go well And we wanted to bring in a guest Who could help us out with this Uh, So I interviewed uh, Laura Bricker Who has been a criminal investigator She is part of Crime Writers On Which is a podcast that started shortly after Serial And originally they talked a lot about the Serial podcast And... They talk about a lot of different things, and you can check them out if you're interested in learning more about that. The podcast is called Crime Writers On. Uh, But Laura Bricker, like I said, has done some criminal investigation, and I'll let her introduce a little bit more of her credentials to you. We're going to hear from her about how an investigation would ideally take place. After that interview with her... Uh, Nicole and I are going to talk about what actually happened uh, and how that compares to the suggestions that Laura made in her interview. So we're recording today for the Unraveled podcast. I reached out to you because you've worked as an investigator. Could you tell me a little bit about your professional background?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So I have been a journalist for almost 20 years, um, covering a lot of police and crime issues. And in the middle of that, I took a break and I worked for seven years as a criminal defense investigator for the public defender system.
1: Doesn't sound like much of a break.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not really. (laughs) It was pretty intense. Um, So during that time, I was a licensed private investigator um, working with them. And I worked on uh, many different types of criminal cases.
1: As an investigator for the, um, you said the public defender, right? Yes. So that's coming at it from a bit of an, a different angle than we're going to talk about today. When you look at cases working for the public defender, how do you? Where at what point do you come into it?
2: Um, usually, we would come into it when somebody is arraigned on a charge at court and applies for a court-appointed attorney. Um, if it's a high-profile case, um, I may have started investigation right away if it's something where I want to find witnesses, um, you know, very soon after an incident. Um, in other cases, I'm coming in it after the fact, and I'm starting based on kind of going over the police reports and maybe looking for um, situations, things that they didn't follow up on.
1: You, when you look at the police reports, what, what specifically are you looking for in those?
2: Well, I think it kind of depends on the case. Um, You know, I would go through and I would look at who they talked with. Um, I would look at um, information from people that the police spoke with. If there was uh, further questions that I had of people that they hadn't followed up on. Um, If there were people that were mentioned as witnesses that the police hadn't gone um, out and gotten a statement from. They just had their name in the police report. I might follow up on that. Um, If there was somebody that had a criminal record. Um, that was a witness, I might follow up on that to find out a little bit more about that person.
1: Okay, great. And so now you're working as a journalist again?
2: I am, yes. I'm working as a journalist, and I'm on the Crime Writers On podcast. um, We're four crime writers. I also have a true crime book, uh, Lie After Lie, that's about a murder case that took place in Missouri and Boston. Um, So we have three true crime writers and one fictional crime writer, and uh, we've had that going for about a year and a half now.
1: That's great. So you're still—I mean, sounds like you're still really involved with um, with crimes, even though you're not working for the public defender.
2: Yeah, more so with the Crime Matters on podcast. Um, I actually do a lot more human interest stories um, for journalism now. I'm a mother, so I've kind of toned down uh, going out into scenes. Um, but uh, yes,
1: that makes sense. Yeah, I guess just generally, and we kind of covered this a little bit already. Um, but if if you were looking over a police report for, like, a robbery or a missing person, what sorts of things would you look for in in what the police did when they conducted their investigation?
2: Um, well, let's see. Starting with the missing person case, I think you would, you know, start from the beginning in terms of talking to the people closest to that person, finding out as much as you could about that person, um, where they were last seen, who they were with, uh, what their daily routines were, um, if there was anything going on in their life that might have been a little bit out of the ordinary, um, and then speaking with all the people that would have had you know daily contact with this person, um, trying to kind of retrace their steps in terms of where they were um, on you know the last day they were seen, um, with regard to robbery. Um, That's kind of an open-ended question there because there's so many different types. Um, As if it's just like a a robbery at like a gas station or a convenience store or something. One of the first things you want to do is get the surveillance footage. Um, A lot of those places record over themselves like every number, certain number of days. Um, So if you don't get the footage right away, you're not going to get it. And, uh, you know, obviously talking to witnesses that may have seen any vehicles in the area um, for license plates, descriptions of vehicles, you know, basically anybody that was there you want to talk to.
1: Okay, that, that all makes a lot of sense. So I want to pivot into talking about uh, the specific case that I'm covering in my podcast. This case involves um, Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot, and it's in Ada County. And so I just want to ask, before I contacted you about being on the podcast, had you ever heard about this case at all? I had not. Have you done any outside research on it?
2: I have not. I've uh, resisted my natural tendencies to look it up, (laughs) which was really, really hard for me. (laughs)
1: Uh, So I just want to go over, um, for the sake of the podcast audience, the information that I have given you, which is just the very basic information that the police investigator would have had coming into this. So it's April 28th, 1984, and we've got uh, three men who pulled into McAnally's convenience store together, but in two separate vehicles. And one of them goes into the store. It's about 8.30 at night, and he wants to get change. As he's walking in, a couple walks out of the store, a man and a woman. They then get into a truck and drive off, which the, uh, the other two gentlemen who stayed out side saw them get into the car and drive off Lenny who went into the store is waiting for a clerk no clerk comes he makes the little chime by the door go off a couple times still no clerk Uh, he gets a little bit nosy and looks around on the clerk's uh, station and realizes that the cash register is open and empty Uh, he then calls the store owner the store manager and the police and an officer is dispatched to the scene Other things besides the open cash register is uh, on the clerk's counter, there's an open beer can and a cigarette that was still lit and burning when Lenny walked in. There's also a college textbook open uh, behind the clerk's desk and the clerk's purse is still there and her car is still in the parking lot. Uh so if you were to get this case in the public defender's office and you were to get a police report to look at what would you how would you expect this investigation to have gone uh, if it had been done thoroughly?
2: Okay, so what I kind of what I would have expected to see. Um, I think I would have expected to see that the police would have, you know, immediately found out the identity of the clerk from the store owner or the manager who came in, they would have gotten a physical description of this woman, they would have immediately because this is a long time ago. So it's hard thinking of what's available Um, Technology-wise, they would have put out back then like an APB over the radio police scanner immediately to let anybody in the surrounding area know that this woman was missing because it would seem, you know, just from looking at the surface, it, it would appear that she was taken from the store. And then, you know, I don't know in terms of surveillance footage what would have been there at that time. If they had surveillance footage, I would have hoped that the police looked at that right away to see if there was any sort of footage of the actual incident inside the store that led up to the clerk being taken away. And, and you have three witnesses. So I would hope to see statements from all three of those witnesses in terms of, you know, the description of the couple that came out of the store, a description of the truck Um, If they got any sort of a partial license plate, you know, what color the truck was, what the truck looked like, um, which direction the truck left, um, if they noticed anything about this couple when they were walking outside of the store. And then just to be on the safe side, I think I would have probably also hoped that they ran um, just a quick Background check on all three of the witnesses to find out who they were um, and what they were doing there at that time. And, you know, it's kind of mysterious this uh, smoking cigarette on the counter. <laughs> you know, I, I, this is like before DNA testing. So I don't know. I mean, I maybe would have asked the store manager or the store owner if they knew anything about this woman. Um, did she smoke cigarettes? Um, did she drink? Kind of curious why she was drinking on duty. But I guess this is a different time and place. Um, So that's that's kind of where I would have started with the case, just trying to get an overall sense of who saw what, what information they already had, uh, you know, kind of at their fingertips in terms of any surveillance, any physical descriptions. And then, you know, in addition to putting out sort of that APB about the woman being missing in her description, it might have been a leap, but maybe putting out a APB with a description of that truck um, right away. And
1: so I guess with the scene, I know, and this is a little bit of a tricky question to ask, you know, 30 plus years later, um, they didn't have, you know, DNA in the 80s. So I think in this day and age, we immediately think like, grab the beer can, grab the cigarette, like get DNA. Do you know, would there have been a reason to keep those things even maybe record, you know, the type of cigarette that it was, even though there isn't, you know, DNA to match it to a specific person? I think most people who smoke generally have one, one brand, um, or even like note down the type of beer, um, what Would there be additional processing on the scene that you would expect to happen before someone were to come in and start cleaning and getting the store ready to open up for business again?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there there wasn't the DNA evidence, you know, testing. Like, like now we just assume that it's done. It's sort of everybody automatically thinks that's happening. Um, but even with that beer can, you know, they could have bagged that as evidence and taken it in and dusted it for fingerprints um, to see if there were any fingerprints on the beer can. Um, you know, I don't know in terms of the cigarette. I mean, I would assume, you know, protocol for processing a crime scene is that you kind of bag and tag everything that's there Um, And, you know, they certainly could have done that with the cash register. They could have dusted for fingerprints on the cash register to see if there was anything on that. And, And so, I you know, I would assume that they would have taken that, not necessarily for the same purposes that we would take it now, but just because it was part of the crime scene and it was pretty obvious that that's what was remaining there. You know, there was there wasn't a lot there. So it seems like based on the few things that were there, you kind of would assume that they would have taken those.
1: And then and you touched on this, I think, a little bit just when we spoke generally about a missing person's case. But outside of the crime scene, what what would be the first steps that you would take to try and find out why this woman might be missing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, kind of like what I was talking about before, you'd want to talk to her family members Find out her living situation, find out where she was living, find out if her roommates or parents or whoever she was living with, you know, significant other when they last saw her, um, if there was anything unusual going on with her. sounds like, you know, the textbook was out. Maybe she was in college. um, Find out if there was anything that had gone on, you know, out of the ordinary recently. And then, you know, as awful as it is, you're going through the people closest to her Um, To rule them out before you really move on. So, you know, you would need to run background checks on anybody that you spoke with and and just kind of follow up on people to make sure that those people that were closest to her were not suspects as well.
1: In this case, I I realize now I probably should have included this in the information I gave you. Um, So she was newly married. I think she'd been married for about uh, six months and she was living with her husband, both of them were in college. So it sounds like oh, okay. probably talking to the husband and, and I guess seeing when he saw her and getting some of that information.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then finding out, you know, it, it seems like it's always people closest to you, that are, the ones that are involved. So, you know, doing a fairly thorough workup on the husband and kind of verifying where he was throughout the day and the evening, um, finding out a little bit more information about him and, um, kind of crossing that off the list. Um, just because that's usually the first place police start.
1: Okay, great. Are there any other thoughts that come to mind uh, with a scenario like this that might that you think might be important?
2: Yeah. No, I think it's just it's, it's so long ago, but you often hear about these cases that happened so long ago and years later DNA evidence comes into play in a way that couldn't have happened at the time that a trial took place. And that evidence is later used to help, you know, overturn a conviction or maybe point the finger towards somebody else. So, um, you know, I think it would be interesting to see um, if there was anything. And of course, I'm going to go look this right up now. That, that, that wasn't processed that may have been helpful to this case because, you know, it was obviously a very different um, time period. So, you know, practices might not have been quite as high tech as they are now. But there's certain kind of, you know, what you call like shoe leather you know I would call it shoe leather reporting but shoe leather investigating where you're really out on the street going through all the people that were involved in the case and that's something that you know takes a lot of time but needs to be done
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time
2: all right thanks a lot bye-bye
1: bye So now that we've heard what Laura has to say about how the investigation should have taken place or ideally would have taken place, Nicole, let's talk about what actually happened.
0: Well, I want to pick up the scene from the moment that Lenny and David Timmons and Gene Welchel came back into the store. So we had talked in the first episode about them showing up, one going into the store, going back out, trying to get the clerk to come out, not really sure what is happening. Um, But to fast forward to the moment that Lenny and David and Jean come back into the store because they've realized that there is no clerk. Um, They come into the store, they are careful not to touch anything, and they call the police.
1: And that's actually pretty lucky. I think a lot of bystanders sometimes don't know any better than to to touch things in the store.
0: Yeah, and as we're going to see as this goes on, these three gentlemen are probably treated the crime scene the most like a crime scene out of uh, folks that were to eventually show up later who would have ideally also treated it like a crime scene but didn't. So Sergeant Harvey Phillips was sent to the scene. He arrived at the store approximately 10 minutes after leaving headquarters, which is about three times as much time as it should have taken him to get there because he was first on his way to the wrong McAnnelly's. So there are multiple stores in Ada. Um, When the cops were called and dispatch sent someone, they were not clear as to which store he was supposed to be going to. He originally started heading towards the wrong store.
1: So McAnnelly's is like a chain in Ada.
0: Yeah, three three stores at the time uh, that this happened. There were three.
1: Do we know how he realized he was going
0: to the wrong store? Dispatcher is the one who realized he had who had not been clear. So the dispatcher called one of the McAnallys and asked if there had been a missing clerk. That person said no, there was no problem at that McAnallys. At this time, he realized he was not clear as to which store. But 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 we're losing time, right? That's the biggest thing.
1: And time is vital. And time, time in, in, in something like,
0: like, like this is vital. So even the ten minutes extra it took for him to get there is long when we start talking about missing persons. That's that's 10 more minutes away that she is. Exactly. So upon arrival, Phillips was shown the scene by the Timmons brothers and Gene. They give the sergeant the information that a, quote, light-colored old model pickup truck had been seen and how the truck was headed east.
1: Okay. And so one of the things that Laura mentioned in her interview— would be to get a description of that truck and to put out an APB for that truck. So do you know, did they radio that information anywhere?
0: Yeah, Phillips immediately radioed the description to Kyle Gibbs. Kyle Gibbs is who was working at headquarters. So he uh, uh, went out to his car, immediately got that information out that we were looking for a light-colored old model pickup.
1: Okay, and, and what direction they went.
0: Exactly, exactly. Sergeant Phillips went back into the store. He started to check the store. He checked the cooler. He checked the bathroom. He went outside and checked the a car that was sitting outside. He just kind of, you know, did a once-over on the area, really trying for himself to make sure that this clerk isn't somewhere in the store he also goes behind the counter and he finds a brown purse he starts to go through it and at this point he finds a driver's license um the idea is not that this is a crime scene we need to be careful we need to treat it as such it's just kind of there is a little bit of a lax feeling of let's just go through this purse and see if we can find out who was working
1: and it To me, it seems a little shocking that they wouldn't consider it a crime scene. I mean, she's gone. The register's open.
0: Her her, car is there. Her
1: purse is there. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, if she isn't there, it seems like it would have been against her will that she left. So it it would seem to me that they would be treating this as a crime scene already. But for whatever reason, maybe it, it just didn't seem that serious yet.
0: Yeah, exactly. When he takes the driver's license out of the wallet, he he looks, and Jean is there as well still. Jean is able at this moment to confirm that that is exactly who was walking out of the store. And what that led Sergeant Phillips to do was that Sergeant Phillips then returned to the car again, his uh, police car again. He radioed in to dispatch that Denise Haraway was missing, gave the name and description of her. So now you have what color vehicle, a, a light-colored old pickup. We know that Denise Haraway is in the car. We've given a slight description of her based off the driver's license and what Jean can give.
1: So in large part, so far, it seems like everything that they've done in the store is in line with, with what Laura recommended would happen in an ideal investigation. They, they put out an APB of the vehicle and where it went and an APB of... Uh, Denise, her description, her name. Um, so, so so far early on, they're, they're doing all the right things.
0: You, they're doing pretty good, yeah. The next person to arrive at this scene is Monroe Atkinson, the store manager at the time. Um, he had been called as well. He arrived pretty quickly. He lived very close to the store. He comes into the store, and this is where we kind of things start falling apart a little bit.
1: So Monroe Atkinson, Monroe Atkinson, he's the store manager. He's the store manager. Does he know
0: what has happened? What Do we know what anyone's told him yet? Well, they ask him to come down because the clerk is missing. I would assume that there would be some sense of urgency around that there is a clerk missing, this is a crime scene, this person has been more than likely taken against her will, these types of things. But Monroe shows up. And he just goes into total, um, it's time to deal with the store. He goes into manager mode, right? He closes the store for the night. He turns off the front lights. He checks the register tape, and he counts the money that's still on hand. And there's quite a bit of money left on hand. There's $500 in the locked safe. There's $400 just right under the counter. And there's another $150 underneath the cash drawer. So he's able to estimate that the amount of money missing is only $167. The last item that is rung up is 75 cents. His guess at this point is that it's for a can of beer that is still sitting open on the counter.
1: It sounds like they, they took some money, but... Money was not the primary motivation of whatever happened at McAnally's that night, because there was a lot of money that presumably Denise knew about that that they didn't get. So it seems like that there was a secondary thought, just grabbing what was in the cash register, but not going for all of the rest of the money that that was in the store.
0: Which also leads me to think that it wasn't a robbery, Right, It wasn't a robbery gone wrong. It wasn't a I'm here for the money and, okay, you know what, I'm going to take you with me as well. It leads this opening to where the money is not really the big issue because if somebody had come in to rob a store specifically for money, then you know that there's money under the cash register. You know that there's probably money more than what's just in this drawer. Um, at this time period, convenience stores do not have the multiple uh, systems in place that we have currently to deal with robberies in the sense of money is dropped into safes that you can access. You know, there's alarm systems. It's known that McAnalyst didn't have an alarm system. There was no way to set off any kind of an alarm. Um, so there was all this money on hand that was left. And I I think it's it's suspicious in the sense of it didn't seem as if whoever had come in there and Denise had left with uh, was not there primarily for money.
1: The manager, Mr. Atkinson, he's doing all of this. He's counting the money, you know, locking the store for the night. And and what is uh, what is the officer doing who's there?
0: Well, at this time, they're they're just all waiting. They're waiting for the detective to show up. So the detective is, you know, is has been called, Detective Mike Baskin, who is this twenty eight year old man who was an eight eight years on the uh, patrol as a cop. This is he's in his first year of being a detective. They're waiting for him to come, and as they're waiting for him, Atkinson complete continues to. Tamper with the scene, quite honestly.
1: So he continues in his his manager mode.
0: He's in full manager mode. And the sergeant isn't stopping him from that. Nobody is kind of intervening and saying, hey, we should all be out of the store. Um, Atkinson should have never been involved in what was in that uh, immediate area. Because what he did was he put the money away. He closed the register. He threw the beer can out, which was the last item that had been rang up. It was opened. It was sitting on the counter. Um he threw it in the garbage. He emptied the ashtray, which had one single butt still burning in it. So he got rid of that. He threw that in the gar in the garbage. And he basically cleaned the store and got it ready for the next day of business.
1: so let's let's back up to the cigarette and the beer can because potentially these are, huge pieces of evidence or potentially they are full of Denise's DNA because she was drinking and smoking at the counter. And I'm assuming in this day and age in in Oklahoma, you could smoke indoors. She could smoke while she's working. Customers could walk in and smoke. So one of the things that Laura mentioned is that uh, when the police get there, they should be finding out whether or not Laura drank or smoked and, and whether or not she drank At the counter. I mean, you know, Laura mentioned it's a different, it's a different time period. Perhaps that was something that wasn't frowned upon, um, or perhaps it's something that we would never expect Denise to do. Um, we do know, right, that while she was there, she was studying, uh, so I wouldn't necessarily think that she would have been drinking at the same time. Do we know, did the cops ask if she was a smoker and a drinker, um...
0: No, none of these things were talked about because the items were thrown in the garbage. So it's not as if it was in hindsight later that we were able to say, okay, this was a huge mistake, right? Um, But at the time, the items were just kind of nonchalantly dealt with, so nobody was asking questions about them. And though I don't necessarily see Denise as somebody as who was sitting at work, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer, and studying, it doesn't fit the narrative for me. Sure, it's not impossible. But the fact that those items were never kept, and no, there was not DNA at this time, but Obviously later when DNA became available we could have had it could have been used but more than anything there were fingerprints on the beer can that is something that should have been looked at that never was and and something I've thought about more and more as I've as I've looked at this case and I've thought about this beer can and this cigarette is that if they didn't belong to Denise then there is this opportunity that the person who was there in the store with her is someone that she knew Because this person was smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer. That's not something you do when you walk in to just buy something in a store or when you walk in to rob someone. There is this, I'm here and I'm, maybe there's a conversation, maybe there's a light of a cigarette, there's a drinking of a beer, and then something happened, something switched that they left together. But I think because those two items were there and they were... They were, you know, the beer can is open and it had been rung up. So whoever the beer can belonged to had paid for the beer. It's this vital, vital piece of information that was completely ignored and really opens up the possibility of giving us a huge window into who was there in the store with her.
1: Yeah, I would assume whoever Denise walked out of the store with is the person who knows what happened to Denise after that moment. You know whether she left with that person willingly or not whether there was some sort of uh duress or force that that she was made to walk out with him and 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 didn't say anything right she walked right by Lenny someone who in theory if she was being forced could have helped her we don't know if maybe this person had a gun to her um you know had made some sort of threat if she said anything or if she left willingly but regardless those clues were there fingerprints on the beer can Uh, fingerprints on the cigarettes. And like you said, we wouldn't be thinking about DNA yet. They didn't have that in the 80s. But if they had bagged these pieces of evidence, it's something we could go back to now. I I, I think that they've missed these huge opportunities. Uh, Assuming that person paid for the beer, and I think it was 75 cents, does the register tape say how much they paid? Does it say he paid a dollar and got 25 cents change? I mean, granted, a dollar bill is going to have a lot of fingerprints on it, but you know, you never know. Does that, that very top dollar in the register before it was tampered with by the manager was that dollar bill handed to her by the person who she left with. Mm -hmm. And, and we don't know any of that because it sounds like for whatever reason, the officer was standing there, letting the manager clean up this crime scene, which is, is just crazy.
0: And it it went... I mean, it continued on even when Detective Mike Baskin shows up at the scene because he arrives and he's filled in by Gene, Sergeant Phillips, the manager. And also should be noted that the Timmons brothers have both left at this point. So you have two people who also may have been the last ones to see Denise alive, who were the people who Lenny saw the individual of which left with Denise and they left. They have not been interviewed, they have not been their information has not been taken they just went home you know, and that to me also is uh, this very kind of lax attitude of who these last individuals were who were probably the last people to see Denise and when Baskin shows up he gave no thought to fingerprints. His focus was 100% finding this light-colored pickup truck in Denise Haraway, which, granted, is a honorable uh, point of focus. He called the highway patrol. He arranged to meet officers at a nearby intersection. Um, they split the city up into areas, and they began searching for this truck, but... I think the biggest thing that was left behind was this last area of which Janice had been in and that was going to give us the most information about possibly who was there with her.
1: Yeah, but I can see where in his mind, it's like the priority is that we get out there as soon as possible and look for this truck that has already had way too much time to get away. But the other side of that to me is like, yes, this truck has had way too much time to get away, which means you need a plan B because at this point that truck could be so far away, you need to be relying on the other mechanisms that you have to find her, you know, running these fingerprints, uh, searching the scene to try and get a better idea of what transpired there. And, you know, while I think that it is very unlikely that she left willingly, I don't think that, you know, someone who's recently married, who is spending her time studying at work, is someone who's then going to run off and never go to class again. It doesn't make sense. But, you know, that, that's something that could have happened. She could have left willingly. And so those clues, though, are, are at the scene where she, was last, where she was last seen by somebody, not out searching for a car. So it seems like, it almost seems like they should have had two detectives there, you know, one to go after the truck and, and one to process the scene.
0: Absolutely. I mean, Detective Baskin is a year as a detective, he is very green, and he began driving around to remote areas. You know, he was out there with the highway patrol, with everybody else. He would think of a place, and he would drive there. And he, you know, he went out, he was thinking about where you would go if you were going to drop a body, if you were going to rape someone. This is what his mind was.
1: So you also mentioned that they hadn't interviewed the brothers who had been there. Uh, what about Gene?
0: No, I mean, no information was is really available. There wasn't background checks. There wasn't information, detailed information about these guys given. It wasn't It wasn't looked at. They just really weren't looked at very much. they they we no one talked about the individual who may have been with Denise well,
1: and that's more what I'm thinking, right? is I guess I'm trying to think as a criminal, which is a little bit difficult. but, if I had just kidnapped someone and I'm driving around and I see a cop car, you know, I am going to make that person hide so that the cops don't see her. So I guess my question really is like aside from this description of a light colored truck, how would they know if they had the right truck if they it seems like they didn't they had people there who could give a description of the man that she left with. Mm-hmm. But did that information ask didn't
0: go out. that I mean the, a description of Denise went out, but the information of who was possibly with her did not go out.
1: And did they ever set up either of the brothers or Jean with a sketch artist?
0: Nothing like that. Even
1: even later after that night.
0: Not that I know of.
1: It seems yeah, there was never any any sketch made from the people who who actually saw the man who walked out with Denise. They never. Which is rare when you think
0: about it when it, that, that is usually the first bits of information that go out when we now think of uh, somebody has been seen abducting someone or somebody has been seen that it's often immediately that picture goes out of who this person looks like, what this person looks like. But yeah, that inf- all of that was just kind of dropped, you know uh, We have Baskin who had gone out driving around looking for this truck. You know, Gene and the Timmins brothers are gone. Detective Baskin goes back to the store after driving out to some remote areas where he thinks he's getting an idea of where they would bring Denise. Um, and, and of course, it's time is going by, and he realizes that that's fruitless. And he goes back to McAnally's store where. Um, Individuals are still at the store, and this at this point he decides he better call his boss.
1: Do we know who's still at the store when he's back at McAnally's? I'm guessing um...
0: Atkinson is still there as the store manager. He's kind of the la- one of the last ones there uh, for the night. You know he 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 ends up sitting in the store. He's the lone person left at the store. Uh, we'll go into soon as as the night went on. He kind of held. Uh, camp at McAnally's with the hope that Denise would come back. You know, he he had a relationship with her. He liked her. He was obviously uh, rattled that she was missing, and he turned off all the lights and sat in the store. and And later on that evening, just kind of waited. Baskin decides to call his boss, mm-hmm. who is the captain, Detective Captain Smith. He's at home. He's sleeping. Um, Smith answers the phone, and his, his words of advice to Baskin are to treat the store like a crime scene. This was his advice, and he went back to sleep. Had he gotten up and maybe gone down there, he doesn't know if it would have changed things. We don't know if it would have changed the, but, you know, you have a much more seasoned detective walking into a crime scene who looks at the crime scene as just that, where we had Baskin come in who didn't look at it a crime scene. He was focused completely on the outward, where this truck was going, and kind of just really skipped over the store. Well,
1: and I, I assume that even though Detective Baskin was a, a fairly new detective, uh, you know that that Detective Captain Smith assumed that he would still know how to treat it as a crime scene. And it, you know, it's the middle of the night; he's not on duty, and and he's delegating, right? Which is is probably what you would assume someone would do. Although maybe in a in a more serious situation, he he should have gotten up and and gone out. I think. At this time, he was also less than a year from retirement.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: which may or may not have played into that decision. We don't know. but Who I can... knows?
0: But yes, I think he was also very much seen as a, a captain who had gone this route, uh, you know to kind of get to retirement and and that kind of thing. It, and, and also, we, we don't have the ability at this moment when you receive that phone call in the middle of the night to know just how complicated this case is going to get, right? No, there's no way of knowing that. You just think, treat it like a crime scene, do your job, I'm going back to sleep.
1: Um, you know, you've mentioned the way that the scene has been treated it's clearly not being treated as a crime scene. You know, why it wasn't being treated as a crime scene before that advice was given, you know, it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I'm sure that in some way it it made sense uh, to Detective Baskins. But then after he gets this advice, after he's told, treat it as a crime scene, you know, it it seems like nothing changed and nothing was done. And at this Mm -hmm. point, you know... Everything happened in the middle of the night. Uh, I feel pretty certain saying that there there wasn't a garbage pickup in the middle of the night. So that trash bag that uh, that the store manager Mr. Atkinson filled is is there somewhere. You mm-hmm. know he could have gone and gotten it and said, oh, "Okay, this is a crime scene. Like, let's grab these things that were there. Let's."
0: And we don't even know really if. Also in Baskin's defense, we don't actually even know if he was ever told that the beer can and the cigarette butt were there, because by the time he arrived, the manager had already cleared this space out, had counted the register, had cleared the area, and so... We don't even know if he was informed until much later. Hey, there was a beer can. Hey, there was a cigarette butt.
1: And that's something I didn't even think of, is that before Detective Baskin got there, we just had the, the regular patrolman.
0: Yes, Sergeant there. Phillips was there.
1: And so perhaps...
0: not a detective.
1: Perhaps Sergeant Phillips didn't tell Baskin any of this. Based on, you know, our conversation, my conversation with Lara, it seems like... The investigation got off to a good start as far as actually searching for Denise, putting out that APB on the car, putting out the APB uh, with her name and her description. And that all went well as far as, like, we need to find Denise. But uh, that's where it ended. And that's where things went downhill as far as finding out who was it that was with her. How do we find this person Um what Every, did this
0: person look like? Yeah, yes.
1: everything... Exactly. Everything that didn't have to do with Denise, everything that had to do with the person who who took her, and, and you know, that that all went wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, this is kind of... So this is kind of where we're left at this point, you know. The things that started to happen after... Detective Captain Smith is called. Is you know her husband had is is called. Uh, Steve Haraway was called a couple of hours after her disappearance, and was told that his wife was missing. Um, he came down to McAnally's and. He was able to verify that, yes, this was her car. Yes, these were her school books. Yes, this was her purse. Um, He also was able to give, as well as he could, a description of what she may be wearing, right? So now we've got a little bit more information of Denise, not just her, what she looked like, but that she commonly wore blue jeans and sneakers and a sweatshirt. It got cold in the cooler at night was something that she always complained about. So he was able to give... This information, and then he was told to go home and wait, and which is what he did. The other person who had been now informed was Janet Denise's sister. Who Janet called the store because they had talked earlier, which we had talked in the first episode. They had talked earlier on the phone, and and Denise had to go because someone was in the store, and so and it was rare for Denise not to call her sister back. And so after some hours, few hours have gone by, Janet calls the store. Um, somebody answers the phone. we We aren't as to sure who answered the phone. Um, she asked to talk to Denise, and the person informed Janet that they couldn't talk to Denise because Denise was missing, which I find to be really interesting to kind of give that information to someone on the phone. You have no idea who this is. You have no idea. Um, you know, again, it goes to that, do we, you know, the information that is kind of easily being thrown out, you're giving that information to somebody who you find is a family member and kind of that what that's going to open up.
1: Well, and I, I think that goes to not really treating it as a crime scene, right? Just just giving out that information like, like oh, she's missing. I, I, it's almost like, oh, she's not home right now. Right,
0: this very kind of lax attitude of like, Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't talk to Denise right now. She's missing. Like, that's a huge blow to someone, especially a family member. If I had made a phone call to my sister's employment and they said, oh, she's not here, she's missing, sorry, I would be hysterical, right? We also, the owner of the store is called, who, and the owner of the store was called by Jean. Um, Gene is not a police officer, is not a detective, but Gene saw the number on the wall there um, because it was posted. And so he calls the owner of the store, O.E. McAnally. He lives about 110 miles outside of Ada, but he got the phone call that Denise was missing. He knew who Denise was. He liked her. So this is what's going on. Everyone is, you know, the, now the family has been informed Um, her husband has been informed. Deputies and highway patrol are fanned out all around Ada, and they're looking for this pickup. And one of the big things that happens, and which we'll see later on, that this is a huge... break in this case as to the direction this case eventually went is that while they're fanned out and they're looking, some deputies stop at J.P.'s Pack-and-Go, which is right down the way from McAnally's. It is about three-tenths of a mile east of McAnally's, so it's very, very close by. And it's another little kind of convenience store, though this one has, like, a game room and things like that. And they spoke with the clerk who was on, and this is a woman by the name of Karen Wise, and they inform Miss Wise that their clerk from McAnally's is missing. And they asked if anything strange has happened in her store this evening.
1: And Karen Wise is, is actually going to play a pretty big role in this story. Huge role.
0: Huge role. So this is the moment that they first meet Karen and they first get some information from Karen. And she talks to the deputies and she says, yes, you know, something strange has happened this evening. There were two men in the store. They were shooting pool in the game room and they had given her the creeps, as she had described, especially the way one of them had looked at her. They were acting weird. And the big thing was they left in an old model pickup truck around 8.30 p.m. So that bit of information really stuck out to these deputies because here's this old model pickup truck left at 8.30 p.m., which would have been just a few minutes before the Timmons brothers and Jean drove up to McAnaly's.
1: I mean, like, like I mentioned earlier, it's seems from uh, what I've read about the case that th- there are a lot of people with pickup trucks in, it's Oklahoma <laughs> in, in ADA Oklahoma particularly in the 80s and and so that may be significant it, it may not be significant right?
0: Right, and the fact that Karen says there were two gentlemen. From what we know at this point, there's only one individual that came to McAnally's. We don't know if there was another individual maybe in the truck. That information, you know, again, was not really flushed out, wasn't really— you know, the Timmons brothers and Gene were never questioned with such uh, thoroughness to find out, you know, as much information as they could get, as fresh as it was in their minds— Um, We know that, you know, people's memories get very, very blurry as we as time starts going on. And and so that the time would have been then, you know, this night would have been the night to get as much information to bring the I mean, the Timmons brothers left the scene without even checking it. You know, they left where, as Laura had said, background checks you know, thorough questioning, thorough um, information from these people who saw her were the last people to see her. That is such a huge moment in this case. They held so much information that was just kind of overlooked and and was not, they did not spend the time on it that they should have. They think that they have a lead now with Karen as Saturday night came to a close. The information from Karen is the, the only piece of information that they have that they've decided to kind of stick with. So to wrap up what happened on Saturday, as late Saturday night comes to an end, the way everybody was left is that we have Monroe Atkinson, the store manager. He stayed at McAnally's well into the night. All the lights were turned out, and he was really hoping to receive a call from Denise at the store. Steve, her husband, was sitting at their apartment, also was waiting for a call from Denise, you know, you had these folks that were just really, really, because that's the thing we can't forget, it's easy to talk about a case and say, oh, uh, the person is missing and talk about these details, but Monroe looked at her as a friend, Steve, this is his new wife, you know, there's a lot of emotion here and and when somebody is missing, it's now getting later and later and later on Saturday night, and these folks are just waiting and hoping that they're going to hear from her.
1: I also want to take this time to mention that later, in later episodes we are hopefully going to have some interviews. We've reached out to a lot of people about this case, but I want to take a moment to mention, this is a a real person who disappeared and, and somebody who was very important in a lot of people's lives and Nicole and I, we made a conscious decision not to reach out to Denise's uh, family uh, or Steve or anyone like that for an interview. Um, I can't even imagine how difficult this was for them when it happened. And the last thing that we want to do with this podcast is, is to try and open up old wounds for them. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, you know, like Nicole said, the, this woman was, she's important. And a lot of people care about her. And, uh, and they're sitting around... Now, Saturday night, Sunday morning, finding out that she's missing and and just hoping she'll call or show up.
0: Exactly. I mean, well into the night at police headquarters was Denise's mother and her sister, Janet. And they were both there with Denise's mother's husband as well and just almost collapsing with worry. And, you know, Detective Baskin was back at headquarters at this point point. Um, not really able to offer much comfort. He eventually sent them home. He had her mother fill out a missing persons form. Eventually, Baskin went home and, you know, and said that dispatch would be open all night, and the family proceeded to call at 2.30 and 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. and every couple of hours calling dispatch, just seeing if there was some information. And I think that is the place where we can kind of leave the conversation about this one night.
1: So now that we've really talked about what happened that night, there are really two things for the police to do at this point. And Number one is look for Denise, try and find Denise, and number two is to look at suspects. In next week's episode, we'll talk about the search for Denise. And we'll also talk about the suspect pool. And, you know, Laura mentioned in her interview, uh, some of the places to start with suspects would be, you know, number one, running background checks on the Timmins brothers and on Gene Welchel, you know, these, these people who were last to see her alive. A- as Laura said, unfortunately, in a, in a lot of missing persons cases, it's it's someone close to the person it's someone who they know so really taking a look at her new husband uh taking a look at her her family or if there was anyone else in her life Um, so those would be uh, based on our discussion with laura the place to start with suspects So next week, let's pick up and talk about where did the police go with that? Who were they looking at?
0: And I think we're going to be surprised, I think, uh, to see that the places Laura mentioned are not the places that they focused. So I think it is, um, again, a, a case where... The best practices and the things that would make the most sense and the things that we can easily look back uh, now in the future and say, why didn't they do it this way? Uh, They just went in another direction.
1: And so to learn more about that, join us next week for another episode of Unravel. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.